All right, well, if you have your Bible, you can begin to work to uh, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. It's a a joy and a privilege, really, to uh, join you and open up God's Word with you uh, this morning. Uh, Last week, I was gone. We we got to go on a vacation that we had had purchased in 2019. Uh, In 2019, we bought a a Christmas vacation to uh, go on a cruise, and that was going to be in March of 2020, and we were at the ship, and all the crews shut down at that time. So uh, we didn't get to go, but we did get to go last week. So as you gathered last Sunday, uh, we were uh, at the same time, we were on the top deck, the deck 11 of the cruise ship uh, in 85 degree weather. You had the cold front that had come down. And so it was like four degrees. It was 85 degrees. It was sunny. We were going down the slides. Uh, it was great. And, and we're, we're so grateful for that. Uh, but then the captain came on the speakers and, and he uh, began to say, hey, um, just want to let you know, uh, things are about to change. Uh, that same cold front that you guys had experienced had gone down into Texas, past Texas, is, was coming into the Gulf. And he said, in, in a little while, we're going to hit this cold front. And so sure enough, in uh, about 30 minutes, the rain started to come. The temperatures dropped from 85 degrees to 50 degrees. Uh, we, I know you feel bad for us, but uh, we, we went back to our, uh, our room and uh, on the sixth, sixth deck and, and the waves and the wind began to pick up and, and it was rocking. And we were kind of towards the front of the boat. So it was really uh, rocking. And, and the boat would go up and, and just crash down. And the, the waves would, would come over our window at, on the sixth deck. It, it, was, it, was pretty, uh, it was pretty good time. Uh, but I was actually, uh, I had a lot of peace. Um, I had a lot of peace. The, the captain had come on. But it wasn't so much what the captain said. It, it was his thick Norwegian accent. And if you know anything about ships and cruise lines, like 95% of the captains, they come from Norway. It's in their blood. Like it's in their DNA. We, we just know how to navigate the seas. Like this, is, this has gone back millennia for us. And so uh, just something about not even really understanding his words, but his accent. I was like, oh man, I can trust this guy's competency and his character. He's from Norway. And so we just got to uh, float along. It made me think of um, uh, John Ortberg, who was a pastor in Northern California. One day, his, his wife, for his birthday, gave him a hot air balloon. Anyone be, been on a hot air balloon ride before? You have? Okay, so maybe you can relate to this. But, uh, so th- they go, and there's another couple, and they exchange vocational information. And then there's like some guy in his early 20s uh, that, that is going to be the pilot. And so they get in, and John, John describes it as just a beautiful day over wine country, uh, see, seeing the ocean. Just the most perfect hot air balloon day. Uh, just felt uh, amazing, like worshipful in that moment. He said, but there was, another, there was another feeling that he felt in that moment. He felt fear. Did you feel fear when you went up or you were good? No, you don't feel that. Uh, but he said he thought those baskets always came up to like the chest, but these were like below the knee. Like, like what good lurch and you're, you're falling out. So, so they're going up and his wife, who's already afraid of heights, is, is really white knuckling this. And the other couple is, and they, they, they go up a thousand feet and he's just trying to enjoy this experience where everyone is afraid. Um, and and he, he can see his wife is just terrified and he sees some horses because she loves horses and she He's like, honey, look, there's, there's horses there. And he says, she doesn't move. She just kind of rolls her eyes back and is like, yes, they're beautiful. And 
He's like, okay, well, what am I going to do to make this? How, how, I know what I'll do. I'll start talking to the pilot, this kid. Uh, maybe he's going to be an astronaut or uh, he's studying to be a surgeon. Maybe something like this would be where, where he's going. And so they're like, tell us how you got into this. So, what do you do for your other job? And he said it, it, it went poorly very quickly when the kid said, dude, it's like this. I, I don't really have a job. I kind of just surf mostly. Uh, and, I, and I got into hot air balloon uh, piloting because one day I was out with my brother in, the, in our truck and we had too much to drink and I crashed the pickup truck and my brother got injured and he was pretty badly injured and so he, just to give him something to do to bring him out to watch hot air balloons, I just kind of started taking this up. And they're like, okay. And he's like, and I don't want you to freak out, but... Uh, it could get a little rough on the way down because I don't know about this particular balloon. I've never flown this one before. And then John's wife said, you mean to tell me we're a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who the only reason he's flying is because he got drunk and crashed his truck so his brother could watch and he doesn't know how to land this thing? And, and then the, the, the other couple, the only words they said the whole time, the only word, uh, the, the, the wife, remember they exchanged vocational information. The wife looks to John and says, you're a pastor, do something religious. <laughs> he says, so I took an offering. Uh, <laughs> but the question in that moment is, can you trust the character and the competency of the pilot? That radically inf- uh, affects your experience of the, of the flight, right? Like every, every parent that has trained their kids how to drive a car understands what I'm saying. Like some of you have little ones, you don't even know. Uh, we're on number three of four. And let me just tell you, there will be tears. And not just from the driver. Like from everyone. Like it's not that we don't trust the character, but the competency. Uh, you, you just don't trust that in that moment. And, and so there's some fear in that. And the question that, that we're going to look at today in, in Romans chapter 8 is this question uh, of this giant hot air balloon in the solar system called planet earth can we trust the character and the competency of the one leading this thing how do we know that that we can have peace and joy and rest in in all these things as we go around the sun uh, once a year how do you know in your life that you can do that or, or not just when the sailing is smooth, but, but when life hits, and it does hit for all of us. No one gets out of this life without some scratches, some scars, some wounds, some limps. And so when, when life really hits, what, what do you feel? What, what do you, what, is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it a, a sense of trying to grab more and more control when, when global pandemics spread or when, when the, the winds come and entire neighborhoods are burned down? Or the rain doesn't come, or the rain doesn't stop coming, or the doctor calls and says, we need to have a conversation. The news is not good. In that moment, how do you know? How do you know that you can still have peace, still rest, still have confidence in the one who is in control? This is what Paul is getting at. This is the most encouraging passage, I believe, in the entire Bible. We're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Uh, And verse 28 is is maybe one of the the most loved. It definitely is one of the most loved verses in in all the Bible. But but what I want to show you today is that it's better than you think. 
It's better than, than what you've quoted. It's better than just uh, having it on a coffee mug or on your Instagram feed. Uh, Romans 8.28 is deeper. It's richer than all of us could know. And, and what Paul wants us to know is not only can you trust the character and competency of the God who is in, in control, you can rest and rejoice in the grip of his sovereign grace. So if you have your Bible, we'll pick it up in Romans 8.28 this morning. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so let me just pause and, and reset the context a little bit. This is the book of Romans. He is writing to the Roman church. Uh, this is not an easy time and place to, to live in history. Uh, there is famine. There's always threat of famine. There's threat of plague. There's threat of violence. There's threat of uh, diseases. There's not much medical care in every way that there is danger. And, and to be a Christian is to be marginalized, to be persecuted, uh, some to be put to death. This, this is the, the people that Paul has in mind and pastorally, lovingly, he's trying to lean into that and, and encourage these people. And, and maybe we're not there, probably aren't in those places, definitely not wondering, are we going to survive the day? But, but that would be the case in the first century. Uh, theologian Michael Byrd put it this way, this was a world where when you woke up in the morning, you could not be sure if you would still be alive at the end of the day. I mean, this is, this is who Paul is speaking to. People who, who are in the, the boat and it is rocking and, and they don't know uh, and everything in the world. When you are suffering, when, when, when your family's suffering, when you don't know when your next meal is coming from or if there will be water and, and you can drink it, all those things. In those moments, it's very easy to hear the, the lie of the enemy that says, questions the goodness of God. Well, if God was good, why would, why would your your son die so young. If God was good, then, then why, or maybe God is good. He's just not powerful. He, he wishes that things went better, but he just doesn't have the strength and the power to make things better. And all these doubts can begin to creep in, like, and you can begin to uh, question the goodness of God. This is who Paul is writing to. And again, today, uh, in the world, there's about 90 to 100,000 followers of Jesus that will lose their life because they follow Jesus in the world. And we praise God that that's not a concern for us in our time and place. But that's true. So, so in, in this moment, in, while I'm preaching, 10 brothers and sisters around the world will give their life for the sake of Christ. These are the kind of people that Paul wants to encourage. Now, again, there's a wide, wide, wide spectrum on that. Uh, we all need this encouragement, but, but just feel like what, what Paul is trying to say to the people that are in the most desperate situation. And maybe, maybe you feel that way today. He says this, when we know that for those who love God. So right away, he's not talking about everybody. He's talking about a certain group of people. And when Paul will, will usually talk about love, he'll, he'll talk about God's love for us. But in this way, he doesn't say for those who believe God. He, he says for those who love God. Because the distinguishing mark of a genuine follower of Jesus is a love for, an appreciation, a worshipfulness of God. Like, do you love God? Is he your treasure? Is, if everything was to be stripped away from your life, would God be enough? For those who love God, and we know that we love God. Why? First John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. 
He says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. The Bible is very, very honest of the brokenness and the evil and the pain and the suffering of the world. The Bible does not call those things good. He's saying that there is a super sovereignty over those things where God is working for those who love God, for his covenant people, all things together for good. This has been the story from the beginning. In the book of Genesis, when uh, Joseph's brothers leave him for dead, sell him into slavery, that is bad. That is evil. That is wicked. And, and he goes through different things in his life that are very painful, very hard, very difficult to get through. But God works together all things for good so that in the end, Joseph rises up to a position in power in Egypt to uh, not only preserve the, the Egyptians, but to save God's covenant people from starvation. And he reunites with his family and his brothers come. And when his brothers recognize who it is that is uh, provided for them, they are terrified and rightly so. They left him for dead and they deserve to die. And so as they're shaking in their boots, what does Joseph say? Genesis 50, 20 says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Are they responsible? Absolutely, for the evil. But God intended it for good. God, for, all, for those who love God, God works all things together for good. We don't have to look any further than the cross of Christ. It is the most wicked injustice, pain, suffering the universe has ever seen. Wicked men conspired with Satan, with wicked government and systems together to conspire against the Holy One, the Righteous One, the One that was perfect, the One that was the embodiment of love and crucify Him. All of that is wicked and evil and horrific. And yet some of us have, even right now, crosses on our, 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 our necks. We have cross jewelry. We celebrate. In fact, the Bible will tell us to boast in nothing but the cross. How could the most wicked, evil thing the universe has ever seen be the most beautiful thing at the same time? Because God works together for good. All things. Will they be responsible or the people that put him to death responsible? Absolutely. But God is good. He works together all things so that at the cross, the most wicked injustice comes to be the greatest good for us. And he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, so to love God is to be called by God to his purpose. Not, not to just invite God along for the ride in our lives for our purpose, but it's his purpose. And that's incredibly good news for us because God's purpose is that he would be glorified and we would be satisfied in him. Our joy and his glory are one in the same. So you were created to delight in and rejoice in God. And as you are called into that, this is his purpose for your life. Now, I said Romans 8.28 is better and deeper and richer than you could possibly imagine. But we're going to have to do some work to get there. Notice Paul doesn't say in verse 28, uh, just start with a, a statement of fact. For those who love God. He says, and we know. And we know that for those who love God. It's not a statement of fact. It's, it's a remembrance. How do we know, Paul? How, how do we know that, that, that God does all that? Well, that's where verses 29 and 30 are so important. In fact, you should never quote verse 28 or put it on your coffee mug or put it on your Instagram without putting verses 29 and 30 on it as well. This is the context. This is how we know. 
Now, before I read it, that there are some things in our, uh, we're, we're all children of the Enlightenment. That means we're fiercely committed to our, uh, our idea that we control our destiny, that we have our own way, that we, we get to decide what's right and wrong. Uh, but uh, then we come to like a verse 29 and a verse 30, and, and, and we can be, find ourselves be offensive, offended by this. But I want to show you, far from being offended, Paul is giving us this, giving the Romans church this as a gift to know. How do we know that we can trust the character and competency of God? And he's going to point us to his sovereign grace. Now, in the next couple of weeks, when we get into Romans 9 and 10, we'll, we'll deal with just kind of the, 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 the thick theology of that. But for today, I want you to receive it as a gift. I want you to receive what Paul is about to tell us as a gift to, to undergird uh, Romans eight twenty eight. Here's what he says. He says, for the, I'll just read those two verses. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In, the, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is what theologians call the unbreakable tr- chain of God's sovereign grace. In fact, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen here. So he, there's five, five verbs that... that that Paul puts out there that, that all connect to each other and all are unbreakable. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now, now this is good news, but, but again, sometimes we, uh, we find ourselves offended by this or we find ourselves trying to do uh, theological gymnastics and try to explain this away. Well, what does God mean by foreknew? And, and some people will say, well, th- that just means that God uh, got in the DeLorean and he went into the future and he saw all that would choose him freely and, and then he got, went back and, and wrote their name in the book of life. This is his foreknowledge. Th- did God know who all, all would come? Absolutely, but that's not what the word means. There's several problems with that. Uh, One of which is that Romans 8.29 is preceded by the rest of Romans. And the whole context of Romans has led up to this point. The first four chapters has laid out this desperate condition that humanity finds themselves in. That we have sinned and that sin, the wages of sin is death and there is death in Christ and the wrath of God is poured on us. And Paul will even quote Isaiah chapter, in chapter 3 verse 10. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. So it wasn't like there's just humanity wandering around and some have enough intelligence or moral strength to be like, yes, I choose God. And then God says, okay, well then therefore I choose you. No, uh, we were desperately wicked. And in Romans chapter five, we see that we were all born into Adam. That was born into death, born into sin, hopeless apart from the miracle of the spirit of God coming and regenerating us. So that's the first Issue. The, the other one is to know in the Bible is not so much a, uh, and this word gnosko is not so much a word of knowledge, but a word of uh, relationship. Um, f- so, for example, when Jesus uh, says in um, 
Matthew 7, 23, uh, I never knew you. He, he has these people, says, in that day, many will come to me and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And he'll say, depart from me for I never knew you. The Bible's not saying that he didn't know about these people that were trying to find their way to him. He's saying that I had no relationship with you. There was no love relationship with there. Uh, Amos chapter three, verse two, God speaking to his covenant people. It says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God isn't saying that he doesn't know about the other families of the earth. He's God. He knows all things. He's saying he has uniquely known and loved Israel. To know is to know by experience, by relationship. So Genesis chapter four, verse one, now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Do you see the knowledge? You know, someone in the biblical sense, this is by experience. Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This word might be better translated, he for, keep that chain up there for a second. He for loved us. He for loved us. Well, why did he for love us? Because God is God and he does whatever he pleases. Now, what, what he's trying to do for the Romans and for you and for me is in the midst of life's difficult circumstances, he's trying to have us zoom way, way, way out from our little microscopic focus on our problems and our pain, zoom out to an eternal perspective and say, look, you, you, know, that, you know that you're good because from eternity past, before you ever were, God set his affection on you, Romans. On you, Redemption Parker. So, so before there was ever a Mark Oshman, God says, I love Mark Oshman. I'm going to love Mark Oshman. Why? Not because I make a nice addition to his team. Uh, often he picks the ones that would not, obviously. And so before I had committed any sin, before he knew all the ways that I would uh, rebel and, and all the ways that I would uh, be idolatrous and all the ways, he, before all that, he, and he knew all that, he set his affection on me and he on you if you are in Christ. This is, this is the confidence that we have. So from eternity past, he had a plan. And, says, uh, and he also predestined. He predestined. That word is what it, what it sounds it is actually, uh, in the Greek, it would be to point, pick a point in the horizon, on the horizon and start to make out for it. So if, if you are like, we're going to the mountains. And so you, all the steps you take to go to that place on the mountain is accomplishing the purpose of predestined. So he says, those whom he foreknow, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, the Apostle Peter put it this way in the book of Pentecost, uh, at, at his sermon at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, as he stood up, he said this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen to that. Like all these wicked men ha- that had conspired in their own free will and had, had, had worked out their evil schemes to get Jesus, Peter reinterprets that and says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he foreknew us, he foreloved us, he predestined us, he sets out to accomplish uh, in our lives what he wants. And that is the conformity to the image of 
Jesus. This is what Jesus wants in your life. This is what he wants in all of our lives. This is what he's accomplishing. This is why he allows uh, good things and bad things, all things in our lives, to begin to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. So so those he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. This is not just the the general calling uh, that happens when someone shares the gospel or proclaims the gospel. That's true going out right now. But the specific calling where the Spirit takes the truth of the gospel and applies it to our lives and, and applies it to our hearts, gives us new hearts, wakes us from the dead, and woos us into the kingdom of God. And I love this because God does it in a variety of ways. Uh, just in, a, in, in, the, in every way that you are unique, he calls uniquely. Think about the person who is writing these words right now. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was breathing out murderous threats against God's people. He thought he was serving God, but he was actually serving Satan. And he had letters to go to Damascus to round up the Christians and to bring them back. And he wanted to see happen to them what he saw happen to Stephen to have them put to death. This is Paul's demeanor. There's no, there's no like, hey, I wonder if God is real. There, there's no like, I really just want to follow God and I'm going to wrestle with the options. He's got the chains. And from eternity past, God knew this. So finally the day comes in Acts chapter 9. Finally the day comes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like, this is the day. He's going. He's breathing out murderous threats. He thinks he's going he to take out the other Christians. This is the day. And as he's going, they knock, God knocks him off his horse, blinds him. And says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's terrified. He's like, who are you? He's like, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then Jesus doesn't say, you should follow me. He just says, go to the city. I'll show you what you must do. And Paul's like, awesome. Everything changed. In that moment, he was called. He went in and and he becomes the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. Think of others in the book of Acts. Lydia chapter 16. Lydia is this fashionista businesswoman. She, She gets called through the intellect. She's studying the Bible. She's asking questions. And one day, God sends Paul to the riverside where where they're gathered for a Bible study and Paul explains the gospel and it says the spirit opened her heart and she came in to the family of God. Later in that chapter, God calls a Philippian jailer. This guy's not through the intellect, just through a demonstration of the power of God. An earthquake happens. He's about to take his own life and, and they stop him and he says, what must I do to be saved? He hears the gospel. He comes into the family of God. God calls his people that he's foreknew, that he's predestined. He's going to get them all. He does not fail in any one of his purposes. And that's true of me and you and all that would come into the family of God. Let's, let's go on. So he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he also justified. This is the emphasis of the book of Romans. That is to be made right, holy in God's sight because of Jesus' blood. He became sin who knew no sin that we, might be, that we might be the righteousness of God. So he gives us his righteousness by the blood of his son. And it said, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And again, this is interesting. Did Paul make a mistake here? We always talk about, and the rest of the Bible always talks about glorified as future. That day when we either go to heaven or Jesus comes back and we will be fully and completely free of all sin, right? 
That, that, that's what it means to be glorified. But, but here he puts it in the past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified. What in the world is that? Well, I think what, and, and many scholars that I read this week said is that he wants to show the believers that their future glorification is as secure as everything else that has come in line with the chain so far. And, and it's an unbreakable chain. There's, there's no point at which you can bust out of this. So, so look at it. When we, when we look at even the structure, sentence structure, those he foreknew, he predestined. So the foreknew and the predestined are the same people, right? And he says those he predestined, he also called. So the predestined and the called are also the foreknew, and they're the same people. And the called, he justified, and the justified are the called, and the justified get glorified. You see how it's an unbreakable chain. This is meant to encourage you. This is meant to mean, man, I can rest and rejoice in that. I don't have to white knuckle this. I don't have to try to walk a tightrope all the way to heaven. No, God's got me. He's got me in the grip of his sovereign grace. You say, well, how do I know? Mark, I'm not a believer. How do I know? That sounds great for, for if you are a believer. What, what if I'm not? I would just say this. You're here. God ordains the ends as well as the means. And the means that God uses to bring people into the family of God is hearing the gospel, responding the gospel, turning from sin, and trusting in Christ. And so right now, I would say, how do you know if you're one of the four new? Do you want to be? That's how you would know. Because if you want to be, the Spirit is doing that work in you. Some people say, well, you know, what about my, my neighbor, my husband, my friends, my family? This just seems kind of locked in, doesn't it? No, God ordains the ends as well as the means. Pray for them. God says he hears our prayers. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. This is how God calls his people into the family of God. And so this shouldn't be a, a point of debate. This should be a, man, isn't God good? That people that were in full-on rebellion to God who deserve only wrath, God chooses some and brings them into the family of God, resting and rejoicing in his good grace. Well, let's, uh, let's just quickly go through the rest. Paul's not going to give us any more information. He's just going to, uh, in different ways, repeat all that he just showed us in the rest of the chapter. He's going to have five questions, rhetorical questions. They're going to have the same answer to each one of them. And you're going to say it in just a moment. He says, what shall, then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, no one. Let's try that again. If God is for us, who can be against us? There you go. Keep that up. That's the same answer for the rest of the questions. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul's doing? He says, how do you know you can trust the character and competency of of this pilot? How do you know that he's for you? Look at the cross. Jesus, the most valuable thing in the whole universe, he gave him up for us. If he gave you the very best, do you think he's going to skimp on the rest? He's not. If God is for us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There you go. You can say it like you mean it. 
It is God who justifies. Again, we don't justify ourselves. There can't be any charge against us because God is the one that does the work. God, from beginning to end, does the work of salvation. The only thing you added to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. God justifies. God justifies. Okay, here we go. Get ready. Who is to condemn? No. No. Thank you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, now when the Bible talks about Jesus interceding for us, sometimes it, it means that he is advocating, he's praying for us. And that's an amazing thought. But that's not what Paul is saying here. This is the language of the courtroom. He's our defender. He's our advocate. And it says, who can condemn And the world will try to condemn you. And Satan will say, you call yourself yourself a Christian? Look at what you thought. Look at what you said. Look at what you did just this week. You're not the real thing. And and the, the, the lies and the condemnation will come and come and come. And then Paul says, who can condemn? And he doesn't point to our own ability to live out the Christian life. He points to Jesus who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is saying this. Picture the courtroom. God the Father on the throne as the judge. Jesus advocating for us. He says, God, you are, Father, you are a righteous judge. You would not and cannot demand penalty for the same sin twice. And then Jesus rolls up his sleeves. He says, all of his sin, past present and future has been paid by me. Look at the nails in my wrists. No one can condemn him. It's already been paid. So, so the lies of the enemy are just that. They're lies. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. He says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Thank you. Let's try it one more time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Thank you. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all the things that the Romans are facing daily as a reality in their life that just scream to them, man, there's no God. He's abandoned you. And Paul said, no, those things cannot separate you from the love of Christ. It says, for your sake, as it is written, he quotes Psalm 44, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What, what is going on with that? It's this Psalm where the people of God are, are crying out, God, are you even there? And the answer to Psalm 44 is Romans 8. Absolutely he's there. Romans 8, 28, for he works all things together for good. And then he can kind of concludes with this last kind of crescendo. No, in all these things, what things? All the things, all the things, all the brokenness, pain, suffering, even the good things. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That, that is amazing. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? I mean, if you're just a conqueror, that, that sounds pretty good. All the enemies that would come up against you and you just put them down, whether it's famine or hardship or persecution or, or, or sickness or, or, or even death, all, all these things. If you can just put those away, that, that sounds like a pretty good life. But he says, no, we are more than conquerors. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror of the things that are coming against you in your life? It means to not only defeat them, but then to subjugate them for God's good purposes. That's Romans eight twenty eight. That's why I said the verse is better than you think. 
Even the worst things in your life, God has, from the eternal perspective, a good purpose in your life. So Paul is trying to be very pastoral here. He's trying with all of his theological resources to be, be, be the most encouraging possible. And that's what we want you to feel. But, but again, remember who he's writing to. He's not writing to people that just say, oh, that's, this is great. Now I can just go live uh, my safe, comfortable life however I want. No. He wants these truths to fuel a death-defying, courageous faith in the world. This is what Romans eight twenty-eight through 39 exists for. To not, not only give you comfort to rest and rejoice in the grip of his sovereign grace, but to, to give you fuel for the mission. To, to be like, man, if that's true, man, if, if there's an eternal perspective and that chain cannot be broken, man, I'll, I'll go anywhere, I'll say anything, I'll do anything for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus, because I want to become more like you. I want to honor you. I, I know this life is just that short, and so let me live like that. The other thing is just as, as a pastor, I want a couple things for you. I want us to develop a, a deeper theology of suffering. Man, I think as a church, we are poorly equipped to handle suffering. And, and, and when, when suffering comes, and it comes for all of us, and it's come for you already, and it'll come again, when that comes, in that moment, shallow faith will not suffice. If you just believe, you know, well, if I follow God and I do all the things, he's just going to give me what I want. And what happens when that doesn't happen? Well, you're tempted to abandon. You're tempted to walk away. You're tempted to despair. But Romans 8, 28 through 39 says, no, no, go deeper. So brothers and sisters, in, in 2022, memorize these promises. Meditate on them. Know them. Rehearse them to one another. It's so important for us. We don't know what 2022 has in store for us. I, I read this story this week about a guy named Peter Deneka. Peter was, uh, came over as a teenager from Russia in about 1910. Uh, his parents, they weren't, uh, I don't know if his parents were, were believers or not, but he wasn't. Uh, but he was, uh, his parents had scrounged together all their money to send him uh, on a ship to America. Because they could see uh, the, the rise of communism. They could see the danger that was in that. And so uh, in spite of themselves, they, they sent their only son to uh, America on this ship. And, and he, his mom gave him a hard piece of bread to take along with him. And, and so as he went, he ate that bread pretty quickly. But it wasn't long before he got, started to get very, very hungry. And he would look into the dining car and he'd see uh, the passengers just eating these uh, just amazing meals three times a day. And his mouth would water and his, and his stomach would grumble and he had no food. And he was desperate. And, and he finally was able to work out a deal with some of the workers on the ship. If I work for you, will you give me some of your gruel, some of your leftovers? And, and they were like, okay, yeah, you can work for us and we'll, we'll give you that. And he had just barely enough to get by on this three-week journey. It wasn't until the last day that he discovered that his ticket entitled him to three meals a day. I think this is how a lot of us live as Christians. We're just trying to get by. We're just trying to scrape by. Oh, I hope God is for me. And Romans 8, 28 to 39 says, man, you're entitled to a feast. You got to eat it. You got to go in there and get it. 
This is for your good. This is for your sustenance. This is for your perseverance in the faith. You've got to know these truths. You've got to memorize these truths. You've got to share these truths with one another. We need to remind one another. We need to be in community that does that for one another. Because here's the deal. When my faith is weak, I need yours to be strong. I need you to be praying for me. I need you to be reminding me of these truths and vice versa. And so as a community, we're committed to remind ourselves of these truths every single week. And you need it. You need it. You need this meal. Literally, you need to come to this meal and enjoy the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to be reminded that God is for you. That we can rest and rejoice in the grip of his sovereign grace. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of your word. I do pray that the saints here would be deeply encouraged that from eternity past and eternity future, you've got them in the grip of your grace. Lord, let us rest in that, rejoice in that, live out of that, and let us be a community that uh, just reminds one another of these truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.